This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a registered clinical counselor in private practice here in Vancouver. Her areas of clinical practice and research focus on the intersection of spirituality and mental health. So, of course, she is a perfect guest for this podcast. Her areas of expertise also include trauma therapy, eating disorders, body image, and sex. Her work has been recognized by the American and Canadian Psychological Associations, and she was recently awarded the International Young Investigator Award for her research in human sexuality. She's the author of Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. She is the host of the popular CBC podcast, Other People's Problems, which features therapy sessions between herself and different clients. Other People's Problems just launched its third season. Get it wherever you listen to this podcast. After you listen to this podcast, she is Hillary McBride. Hillary, how are you? So good to be with you today. I'm, I'm doing well today. Thank you for asking. How are you today? I'm okay. I have yeah. to admit, though, this is a bit surreal for me because I listen to your podcast. <sighs> <laughs> I hear you administering therapy sessions, and now mm. I'm talking to you. So I feel like a warm calm has swept uh, over me already. Yes, I think this is the this is one of the issues, or maybe the benefits of having a podcast is that people have this kind of therapeutic association with my voice, and when they hear it, they're just perhaps o- open and curious <laughs> and connected to me already <laughs> in themselves. <laughs> I embrace the vulnerability, so I'm ready. Great. <laughs> well, thank you. It is an interesting time to talk about mental health or Mm -hmm. to do a mental health checkup. I'm curious, over the past few months, as a clinical counselor yourself, what mental health, mental wellness-related trends have you been seeing during this pandemic? And of course, it's not over. We might be lifting restrictions, but we're still very much living through a pandemic. And by trends, do you mean um, symptom presentations or uh, diagnostic criteria that are showing up or maybe more coping and behavioral um, solutions? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I think I just meant like, is there a commonality between your Mm. clients that you're seeing that they're bringing up new issues or something is constantly coming up maybe as a result of the crisis, the pandemic? Right. My my answers to your questions probably aren't going to be extremely helpful because as a therapist, I'm trained to see everybody phenomenologically, which means that I'm looking at a person's lived experience and there are some unique variabilities that, that really ch- change or shape how we experience something that might be common between us. So what I could say is that there are a few categories of things that are happening. There's, you know, people who for the first time are experiencing distress and social isolation in a way mm-hmm. that is destabilizing and feel scary and overwhelming. And then there's a group of people who feel like perhaps their existing mental health issues have really prepared them well to deal with things. And they're, you know, they're teaching their friends how to manage panic attacks and they're going into, you know, deep into their coping bin to be able to resource themselves well. And then there's other people who feel like because of what's been happening already in their lives, dealing with things like racial injustice and violence Mm -hmm. and, then, uh, you know, a pandemic and not being able to be with family members feels like it's just been too much to cope. And then there, I think there are other people who for the first time in their life are are experiencing a kind of flourishing that surprises them and surprises people around them. Oh, really? Realizing, yeah. Things As a like, result of the pandemic. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I might be more tentative in my my link. We could say it's correlational, <laughs> not necessarily causational, sure. that we all have these, these things in us that if they're available to us and if they're nurtured, that allow us to take a difficult situation and feel like it can tr- we can transform it or it can transform us. Mm-hmm. But there there are some people who are saying, wow, I, I haven't actually had time to spend time with my son in the way that I have now mm. because I'm not traveling for work. And it's yeah. making me realize that work is pulling me away from the thing that's most important to me. Or I've had a chance to tell people in my life how much I care about them because I've been worried about their health or, you know, fill in the blank. So 
there are so many different ways to respond to a single experience. And sure. And because of our different identities and positionality in terms of class and education and access to resources, these things hit us differently, even mm-hmm. if they look the same in the news headlines. Yeah. And that's, you know, I guess that answer makes sense because you are seeing a wide variety of people, yeah. whereas I'm thinking of my own social circle and social groups, and I find a lot of people are depressed, like there's just mm. a, lo- mm-hmm. a lot sadder uh, than they were in the past. And there is that acceptance of a certain fragility in life right. and recognizing that, you know, you might have started the year with all these big plans, but they are really tentative right. and dependent on your environment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think we have an assumption about people going to therapy that people who go to therapy have some sort of vulnerability or weakness. And mm. and while you might look at people who go into therapy as people who yeah are going in because there is something they're carrying, those are also people who have some degree of resourcing internally or socially that allowed them to walk in the door and say, "Hey, I need help." And there is a massive amount of uh growth-enhancing, growth-producing capacity resilience in these people, that they are mm-hmm. the ones who are saying, hey, I'm not afraid to let somebody in and receive help. And there's so much strength in that. So when I look at the sample of people that I spend most of my time with, yeah, there, there is a, a large number of them who have existing challenges, but these are people who are incredibly resilient and empowered that they are walking in a door to see me and asking mm-hmm. for help. I have to admit to you. Let's hear it. I've never been to therapy. Mm-hmm. I have nothing against it whatsoever. But I used to be a self-help junkie, mm. particularly in my mid and late 20s. And in talking to others, sharing with others, one thing that I've realized is that so much of our trauma or our quote-unquote problems come from something in our childhood And you brought this up in a recent episode about how so many of us feel like we're still 14 or we don't feel like we're an adult. Right. And these stories and these narratives from our childhood or our young adulthood still have such a strong hold over our identities. I'm 35. I have never felt like an adult. (laughs) And I've almost learned to live with it as opposed to feeling like an adult, but you've suggested that there is a way that you can reconnect with that imprint in our youth and through that reconnection, find a new bridge to actually feel your age or feel like you are presently. Can mm-hmm. you tell me about that? Which specific part? The bridge or the the fact that our childhood stories still impact us now? Both. Why that is so common, because I think a lot of people have imposter syndrome like myself and don't realize that it's actually quite common. And then this idea of a bridge where you go back and then reconnect to who you are in the present. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll sidestep the answer for just a moment to name, isn't that important that that's happened, right? You had this feeling that it was just you Mm -hmm. and that because of this, this podcast, which I think is really in some ways like a societal mental health intervention to let people realize they're not alone in the stuff that they're carrying. Mm -hmm. But it reminded you, okay, this isn't actually something that's defective about you. This is something (laughs) that so many people share. And in that way, the podcast is doing exactly what it's meant to do. Because so many of our our individual experiences we hold within ourselves because of a kind of shame or defensiveness around them, or even just the not knowing, like, wow, other people hear this or feel this or wonder this. Mm -hmm. And when we pull apart the barriers to self-disclosure, like our defenses and our fear and our shame, we realize, wow, there's so much that other people experience that I do too. And it starts to take away from the us and them mentality that we have, which I love about this, this podcast because you don't know the age you don't know the skin mm-hmm. color. You don't know the the economic status of these people or their level of education. And in some ways, we can read ourselves into them. Right. So that's my my sidestep. Sure. I'll get you yeah, an I appreciate that. <laughs> One of the things that I think is a a critique of therapy is that there is this sort of navel gazing that happens. That people are you know just going back into their childhood, and it's you know 
isn't it always the same as what we see on TV? And we kind of use that as a way to diminish really how significant these experiences that we have growing up are. Mm -hmm. In fact, what most people don't know and was surprising for me to learn was that the human being isn't actually fully developed when they're born. And based on how we've evolved as a species, in order for us to be walking upright, how that changed the pelvis of a pregnant person meant that kids had to be born before their brains are actually fully developed. So, so much of our development as a human actually happens on the outside of the womb. And what that means is the experiences that we have around us are actually shaping our anatomical tissue. They're they're shaping the way that our brain develops. In fact, we have this almost like a lump of clay for a brain. And based on the experiences we have, particularly with the people that are close to us who are supposed to be taking care of us, that actually molds the structure of our brain. So when we become adults and we look back, Right And say like, why do I feel like I did at that time? That's because at that time, that was how your brain was developing. Right. And unless we intentionally seek out relational experiences that give us a new way of being, then our brain is pretty much like it's set. It's like that. I mean, our brain has the capacity to change, but if we don't lean into that, then it's going to stay kind of reinforcing these stories that prove how we feel about ourselves and re- like perhaps uh, recreate experiences we've had previously. So we have this, this shaping and molding of our brain up until a certain point. And then sometimes what happens is people realize like, why do I feel so disconnected from myself? Or why am I doing this behavior that I don't love doing? Or why can't I trust people? There's some sort of like stuck point. And that's usually when people go back into therapy, that their way of being in the world isn't working for them or the people that they love. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do in therapy, I think ultimately when we look at what is most effective about therapy is we're creating these what you might call corrective experiences, which is we have a relationship built on safety and trust where we're deeply attuned to and affectively regulated, which means that somebody is helping us do different things with our emotions in such a way that we don't get overwhelmed and feel like we can't feel anything or feel too much. And together, all of those ingredients create the right experience for our brain that kind of got shaped a certain way to start to get reshaped. Hmm. And not that we are correcting something that's broken, but we're sort of unleashing these tendencies in our nervous system that actually want to self-write, that want to be in congruence and rest and confidence and wholeness. And there are a bunch of different ways that we can do that. Sometimes just the experience of being in a room with somebody who's safe and training our brain this is through the principles of positive neuroplasticity, training our brain to be present to the safety and the connection in the present moment. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's sufficient. And other times we need to go back and almost drop into these stuck places, some resources that we didn't have at that time, and then remind our nervous system, hey, you're not stuck there anymore. You're here. Right. And when all of us knows that we're here, oh, then we don't have to keep using the defenses that we did so long ago because we don't need them right now. Yeah. Someone once described mental wellness using this analogy. They said, if you are outside and it's cold, you put on a winter coat. (laughs) And someone who is having certain mental health issues, they will continue to wear that coat even when it's super hot in the summer. Right, yeah. They need sort of that therapy to tell them and to make them feel safe that, hey, it's okay to take off the coat because it's warm outside. The coat was totally normal when it was cold and it was a necessary thing to do, but you can take it off now. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Because what you were saying kind of reminded me of that analogy. Yeah. I mean, we could get into the, the technicalities of things like the stress diathesis model, how much of our mental struggle is given to us epigenetically through intergenerational patterns Mm. and experiences of our ancestors, how much of our vulnerability mental health-wise is because of some some genetic component, but a huge part of what's happening is our adjustment to our environment, including even how our environment responds to our genetic vulnerabilities. So even if we have something epigenetic happening, if we're in an environment that scaffolds us and supports us to feel cared for and seen and reminds us we are safe and helps us adapt, then Mm -hmm. even those genetic 
predispositions will look a little bit different than if we had a different environment around us. Mm. But you're right, the environmental context and our ability to assess, am I adapting to what's happening now or does my nervous system feel like it's stuck back then? That's right. a huge part of mental health and a big part of what we do in therapy. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of the analogy. I've used something similar myself and I think it's a, a great way to explain what we do and, and why. And I do want to take a few steps back before we get into it a little more. I want to touch on something that I've covered on this show in the past, particularly in an emotional episode with Teresa Campbell, episode 66. And I want to look at this idea of trauma. Mm -hmm. How do we define trauma? Mm -hmm. There are a few different ways to define trauma, but all of them have to do with the lived experience, not the event. So two people, and this is kind of what I was referencing earlier, two people can experience the same thing. And for one person, based on their history, their context, their biology, their temperament, it feels traumatic. For the other person, they don't even notice that it happened or it even feels positive and enjoyable. I mean, think of something like a roller coaster, how how it could be experienced as terrifying or so much it, um, it could be adventurous and playful for one person right. for the other. So. Trauma is the lived experience and, and what happens in us. It comes from the Greek word, which means to wound. And so it represents a kind of biopsychosocial wound of some sort. And I like to use the definition that one of my trauma, my teachers and mentors, Dr. Rick Bradshaw gave me, he said, trauma is anything that's negative and unexpected that leaves you feeling confused, overwhelmed, and powerless. Mm-hmm. I've heard other people say trauma is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon. Does it necessarily have to have a lingering effect where you carry it in your future behaviors? Yeah, I think that everything that we go through, even the positive things, impact our future behaviors. Mm, sure. But I think that it's important to note that there is there's something we call the kind of the post-traumatic factors. So when something happened, was our nervous system able to integrate it? Did we have the support, the care, the compassion? from people in order to be able to make sense of what happened and get the sense from the response of others, okay, the trauma is over, I'm safe now. (laughs) And if we got that, that it could be enough to help our nervous system know we're not back in that trauma still. But if we don't, for whatever reason, get a sense of release or discharge or moving out of the traumatized state, it's pretty normal for our body to feel like it really integrates the trauma and some part of our nervous system or limbic system all of these brain-body systems feel like, okay, I'm still in the traumatic event. So there are a bunch of different factors that make a person carry it with them in perhaps a more visceral, somatic way than for other people. But I think that everything we go through impacts us somehow. Sometimes we might just feel more stuck than other people do. I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like so many of us, and I'm guilty of this too as well, we think, if only I get a little bit of money If only I find the right partner, if only I do this or that, I'll be happier. And oftentimes you do those things, but the same issues, we can call them problems, maybe we can call them trauma, still come up. And I'm just wanting to know your thoughts on whether rationally or as a form of conditioning, we look at trauma maybe in a mechanical way as opposed to a spiritual or emotional way. Do you know what I mean? I'm having a hard time following the question. Could you you ask me again, but just a little bit differently? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. When we look at, and maybe trauma isn't the right word, and I think that's why I wanted to define it, Mm. and that's why I was asking about lingering Mm -hmm. effects. This idea of the stuck place that you talked about, the stuck points. Oftentimes, we convince ourselves that, you know, if, if only this happens... If only I can achieve this, you know, my problems, mm-hmm. it, my issues will, will be resolved. And oftentimes we achieve that thing. Right. But, but the issues still linger because we have internalized our issues or our problems as a mechanical sort of thing where mm. if only we do A, B will happen. Right. As opposed Some sort to, of math equation. Yeah. As opposed to looking at it from a more spiritual or perhaps emotional level. Mm, does that make more sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. There's um, 
I think there's a few different pieces that I want to pull on in the question. And one of them is that we're not often told how to do, how to do healing well, hmm. right? We are given this formula. We are given the formula. Um, well, you're feeling sad, have the ice cream cone. Uh, you're, you know, you're feeling tired, go have a nap, go, go do another, a, a something on your own, engage in some sort of specific behavior and your pain will go away. Exactly. Yeah. And we're not necessarily always shown how to be with our pain in an affective somatic sense. So like attending to what is happening inside of us in a way that helps it move through us and kind of complete some sort of response that's needed on the inside. Mm-hmm. And and so when I've heard it said, I can never quite remember the exact words for this, but something like you can never get enough of something you don't need. You sure. can never, like, <laughs> yeah. like okay, I, I'm never going to actually get the satisfaction or healing I need from this other thing over there that someone has told me is valuable. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the pulling apart happens is that we are often playing out these scripts that we were given based on our social context and our family and our value system and what's happening in the world around us. Certain behaviors are instructed to us or we're told this is how you are a good person or we see certain things rewarded. Like you said, have enough money or get the right job or do the right thing. And so we're, we're feeling this pain, but then we're just acting out these scripts that we were given about what we're supposed to do when we're in pain, mm-hmm. never really stepping back to ask ourselves, is it working? And where did I learn that story? And is there something else I could be trying? And how come I keep doing this thing if it doesn't work? <laughs> but I think a, a secondary underlying process that complicates so much of this is it's really hard to even begin the process of change if we are not aware enough to notice our patterns and we're not paying attention enough to know that they're not working. Right. And so I think a really beginning central step of any kind of healing is slowing down and tuning in. (laughs) What is happening for me? How come every time I've had a hard day at work, the next morning there are six empty beer cans outside the door? Okay. How come every time my partner says, hey, I really want to talk about what happens next time we visit your parents and how there's always so much conflict. You know, we shut down and we tune out and we pick up our phone. Like, what is going on there that those things are linked for us? Mm-hmm. And if we're not slowing down to pay attention, it's really hard to see see what what's gotten us stuck and maybe start thinking about some ways out. When we think about the beer cans or right. some sort of eating disorder or relying on technology, being addicted to technology. Is it fair to say that some of that reactionary behavior comes from a sense of powerlessness or helplessness or a feeling that you're not in control and trying to engage in a behavior, which could oftentimes be positive too. I mean, there's workaholics as well, (laughs) but engaging in a behavior that gives you a sense of control? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's definitely a big part of it. Maybe a more inclusive way of thinking about it is that we have experiences that we don't know how to be with. They could mm. be sadness. It could be even excitement. I mean, some people grew up in family homes where they were told, like, don't, don't be excited. Don't have pride. That's arrogance. Um, so even excitement or joy or delight or mastery feel intolerable in some ways. Mm. So we have an experience and it's hard to be with that experience because we weren't shown that it was okay or we weren't shown, shown how. And often that's an emotional experience. And then we try to get away from that somehow. And we try to get away from that by stepping into our defenses. And, and that's what you had mentioned earlier is being like the coats we put on. Mm. So we put something on to take care of ourselves to perhaps meet a need to numb ourselves or to bump up our affect to give us a feeling that we've been missing, like a kind of high, or we, you know, we engage in some defense to actually get us away from feeling or to soothe us and bring us down, right? That's what alcohol is really good at doing, like bringing things down a bit. So we engage in these behaviors to manage what's happening inside because we don't know how to do it otherwise. And sometimes it's for control, but sometimes it's it's actually what was handed us. Like sometimes mm. when we really get into it, we see people come into therapy and they say, well, I screamed at my kids because that's what my parents did when I did something wrong. So we're just 
passing on these traditions of ineffective coping and not really understanding why we're doing them, except they were just kind of gifted to us like heirlooms of some sort. And so sometimes it's eating or workaholism or drinking or whatever. And again, work is not a problem. Eating is not a problem. Enjoying alcohol is not a problem. It's when we start to use these things to get away from our experience. And in that way, we cut ourselves off from ourselves and what we really need. Mm-hmm. That's when we want to start paying attention. Yeah. And that's what I'm curious about in terms of COVID. And I want to mm. bring it back to how we started. Right. This idea that, you know, we all had big plans for 2020. Right. <laughs> and suddenly this thing that is completely out of our control, out of everyone's control, and is now forcing us into isolation for some people, forcing us to change behaviors. What are the emotional adaptations? Mm. And maybe I'm going a little a little bit off on a tangent here. I just feel like, for me, it was very tough yes. the first month in COVID. I felt very sad. I kind of... You know, I used to work out every day. I was, I had a great sleep schedule and and all that stuff started to unwind in that first month. And it was only until I felt an acceptance of letting go of control (laughs) that I started to put things back together. (laughs) Oh, you're so right. Like we, I mean, just even coming off the new year too, we walk into the new year thinking, I am the master of my life Mm -hmm. and I'm going to choose what is my best life and I'm going to work on things. I'm going to lay these plans for myself and then everything changes. Yeah. So I want to, I want to answer in a way that gives room for there to be multiple experiences because this won't apply to everybody. Sure. Perhaps there will be some. I'm just, you know what? I'm just trying to get a free therapy session out of you, Hillary. (laughs) (laughs) No, but please, please be (laughs) inclusive. (laughs) So there is this, um, this thing that happens whenever we, we make a change, and particularly when the change isn't something we choose, it's really disrupt, disruptive for our internal working model. It kind of shatters our assumptions that we are in control of our lives and reminds us we are in this whole big system of people. And I think that's particularly painful for us in, in a Western context where many of us have this kind of post-colonial individualist mentality where mm-hmm. we think of ourselves really as disconnected from our family and our community and the earth. And so we have this, you know, this fragmented experience that happens where everything we thought was going exactly how we wanted it to gets disrupted. And anytime there's that much change, both in like the kind of automatic processes we engage in, like things like touching our face to like just being able to walk onto the bus or into the grocery store, mm-hmm. that's hugely disruptive energetically. It takes a ton of executive functioning for us to be able to focus and plan and adapt. And whenever we're focusing that much and there's that much change, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And then we're also disconnected from our community. So there's a huge amount of loss in being able to not access the things that would normally uh, create some buoyancy when we're stressed. So not only are are we tired and stressed, but then we can't necessarily do the things that we would normally do to manage that stress. So where does it go? Right. And sometimes people will get creative. They're like, okay, guess you know what? I'm I'm going to be baking bread. Like we heard that from so many people. Yeah. This is my new thing to manage my stress. I'm baking bread. But for other people, it felt like, well, I, I don't have access to that or that doesn't feel appealing, but alcohol is right there or <laughs> hours of Netflix is right there. Yeah. And so when we've, we're tired and we can't cope and we are grieving the loss of our connection, the loss of our resources, what do we do in those moments? And then I think that like that gets to what you were saying before too, we're, we're trying to do these things that we think will make us feel better, but they're not because we might not be attending to the fact that it's scary mm-hmm. and we're afraid and we are grieving and we are, um, we're not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah. And that, again, just to say it really clearly, it takes so much energy to be in the not knowing or to be in a, a space of change. Did I answer your question? Because I think you tried a few different ways and I just wasn't sure. I want to make sure I really, I answered what you were asking. I think you did. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this, I'm just talking out loud, to be very honest with you, because I, I, I like exploring this idea of trauma, things that we learn or are conditioned with in childhood. Right. Control, how we handle stresses. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not particularly looking for 
you know, the secrets to all the universe just yet. I'm yeah. trying to understand the yeah. concepts as well. Got it. Good, good. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Got it. In all of that, I'm also trying to place this idea of vulnerability because vulnerability seems to be this outward expression of I'm not in control or I accept certain behaviors that I want to change. But I don't even know what that means, to be honest. And I, and mm -hmm. I said at the start of the show that I embrace vulnerability, but I think I embrace a very nebulous idea. Right. I don't know exactly yeah. what it is. Oh, and we can be performatively vulnerable too. Like we mm. letting people see just enough of us that they think that we're taking a risk and they feel like they get to know us, but perhaps don't get to the places in us that are actually woundable, which is what vulnerability means to be truly vulnerable is to take a risk often socially or interpersonally to let people or a person have access to something that um, that is a wound or could wound us. Vulna mm. coming from the, the root word meaning to wound. And so, yeah, being vulnerable can look different ways with different groups of people. Um, and sometimes it means showing a side of ourselves and uh, maybe even a playfulness or a delight or an excitement when we're not used to doing that. Or maybe for other people, letting them see the things that we're afraid of, letting them see the places that we don't often let other people go because they carry such, such pain for us. So there's all sorts of vulnerability. But I think even in session when I'm with my clients, my hope is that there are so many ways where I'm vulnerable with them. And that doesn't actually mean that they are they're knowing the details of my life. But when I risk take a risk to say to someone who I'm working with, I care about you. Mm -hmm. There's a vulnerability in that because I don't know what they're going to say back. And what would it be like to be rejected or resisted by someone who I am supposed to be helping? There's like, it gets complicated, right? So right. vulnerability can show up in different ways. Um, but vulnerability, I think maybe intrapersonally is taking the risk to go to some of the places that feel scary to go. And for some people, that's just walking in the door to go to therapy because, because it feels so painful to access some unfinished business. That's what I'm getting at is vulnerability seems to be the opposite of control in a lot of ways, right? Like mm. vulnerability seems to be this huh. idea of letting go of control. I mean, even when you're as you said, when you say something that's vulnerable, such as I care for you, you are letting go of your control of that relationship to a certain degree. You are opening yourself up to being wounded, right? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way to think about it because I think, I think when we're doing vulnerability well, we're also making choices about what is safe? Like there are people mm -hmm. I'm not going to let myself be vulnerable with because I know they couldn't hold it or it's not their job or whatever. Exactly, the, yeah. Right. And so in some ways there, I think when we're doing vulnerability well and therapeutically, there is choice. There is control. There's cons maybe a better word would be to say consent. Mm. Like I am, I'm giving myself and you permission for us to go to this place. And I'm doing that because I know, I know that more likely than not, it's going to go. Okay. Right. And that's just it. In any environment, you're even in an environment where you are presuming to be safe, there's still that risk exactly. that you're going to be rejected or wounded or yeah. however you want to put it. And those are those are important moments too. Like I I think that the myth of true safety is that there are never any what we call ruptures or fractures or this like these kind of breaks or misses mm -hmm. in relationships. And actually what the attachment research or the research and attachment theory shows us is that we all do that to each other all the time. We miss each other. We get stuck in our stuff and we don't really hear the other person, but it's how we repair those things that can actually be part of that corrective experience I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So I am... I am so happily married. My marriage is one of my favorite things about my life. It's my partner and I are um, deeply connected to each other. And even when he misses me sometimes, there is always a, or I miss him. There is a, oh, I missed you. I'm so sorry. Can, can, I, can we try that again? Because I wasn't hearing you. I was so stuck in my own stuff that I didn't really actually get what you were trying to say to me. And it's those moments where we repair 
that we get an experience of healing that perhaps we didn't get in previous relationships. So mm -hmm. not re relationships don't have to be perfect for them to be healing. They often need to be corrective and that can look so many different ways. Even just, I hurt you, I'm sorry. Especially right. if we grew up and never heard, I hurt you, I'm sorry. That in itself is where the healing happens. Right. I want to ask you about your practice, especially during the crisis. Okay. Were you seeing patients over Zoom or FaceTime or Skype? Yeah. 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 In fact, almost immediately everything pivoted online. And <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why I like to be a therapist because being in a room with a person and seeing their face and feeling the energy between us is part of the magic of therapy. And so I'm not going to lie, like going from being in person in a room to staring at a screen for endless hours each day, it was a <laughs> It was not my favorite thing. And yet, I think one of the really cool things is I, I had this transition with my people and we kind of unexpectedly, everything kind of has to shift and we didn't have a plan for it and we're just like figuring it out. And then we see each other oh, and there is this sense of, wow, we can, our connection is strong enough that even though everything is up in the air, we can pivot and meet each other mm -hmm. and still do good work. Like, wow, look at the trust we've built that, Everything yeah. can change and we can still do good work. And I think that speaks to the rapport that you've built with you these people, it. obviously, yeah. right? Yeah. I was just thinking about how, and I've had this conversation with a few people about how Zoom is not a substitute for, for meeting someone and you don't right. get the spirit or the gist of someone over yeah. Zoom. And I, I found it particularly bad for dating, for like a first date Oh, yeah. Over I can Zoom. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> there's some people that swear by it now. Like, there's some really? people. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess you like pajamas on top, but like nice shirt on <laughs> the pajamas on the bottom, nice shirt on top. No one needs to know. Comfort of your own home. <laughs> I could see some pluses. There's that. I think for women, there's the vetting process. Like, it's another layer to be able to vet someone. Yeah. I just found that the static representation of someone was not particularly my jam in addition to having to see myself in a of Zoom course. meeting or a FaceTime. Because there is that little screen where it's it's you and you're like, oh my God, like, do I, why is my face so big? Uh, yeah. You know, so many thoughts coming. Did you name that with people as you were like on this date? Were you like, this is weird, this is hard? I, or, or was it like kind of all happening in some No, I mean, I, I try not to get too meta on my dates or anything like that. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely something that I was being conscious of. And to be honest, even with this podcast, I mean, I know we're over Zoom right now, but I really like it when I'm in a room with someone. Oh, like you yeah. just get a better vibe and you're able to connect a little more on that level. Whereas in this situation, we're having a lovely chat, but it's still not the same. And that was actually very difficult for me to adapt to because mm -hmm. I really thrive off that personable, getting someone comfortable element. And it's real tough when it's just a voice and it's a stranger. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And how that really played out in therapy is when I'm doing this deep work, like you talked about all of the work that happens in the room where we're building rapport and and really like another way of saying it is just just building a relationship just getting to know each other and have safety and trust like when someone mm -hmm. says someone something they see how i smile or i i tear up or i'm moved with them and then we move online and to try to make eye contact with them i'm looking at the green dot at the top of the screen which means that I can't actually see their face because yeah. I'm having to pick like I want you to see me looking at you but to look at you I'm not actually looking at you. It's this, there's a lot of things to juggle. I mean, therapists out there, I mean, we're doing our best. It's <laughs> yeah, that was a weird realization for me because I was trying to figure out why does it not look like I'm staring directly into the camera? And then I realized, right. oh, because I'm looking at the screen. Yeah. And then everyone else who was looking directly at the screen at me I was just thinking they're weird because they're looking into the camera. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a lot of different things to figure out. And all of those specifics 
like seeing a screen and trying to figure it out and hold your attention, but not getting any of the eye contact back. That has been a big reason of why I think so many of us are feeling so exhausted and so overwhelmed because all of those things change what our attention and executive function functioning systems are doing. And they take a lot out of us, but they're not, we're not getting back the same kind of return on investment that we do when we see a person's face. Like mm-hmm. we're not getting the same release of oxytocin. We're not getting the same release of all of these soothing mechanisms that naturally happen when we're just sharing a space with someone physically and our bodies are close to each other and we can see a person's breathing and it mm-hmm. shapes how we breathe. So we we have to get more creative and and in therapy, I mean it's different than dating, albeit everyone's just trying to get to know each other. I would hope so. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But we are saying things like, okay, I'm noticing your voice, or can you tell me what's happening? I can hear a tapping. Is that your finger? Or really paying attention to the things that otherwise might just be implicit. We have to talk about them and make them really explicit. Yeah. What was the challenge for you in these Zoom meetings? Did did it go as you thought it would go yeah. in terms of the transition or was there something that kept coming up and maybe you had to adapt? Well, I mean, video lag and internet connection delays is certainly a, like a complication that you don't have to deal with if you're sitting face to face. So <laughs> when those things happen or it's really, it's actually, there's a kind of preciousness to it. Some people are like, okay, my kids are in the other room and they might come in at any time because I'm homeschooling now. And, you know, a kid runs in the room and is all of a sudden like really needing mom's or dad's attention. And so there's all of these other elements that in some ways kind of disrupt the therapy, but also give me a sense of what is a person's life like Mm. in a way that they would never be able to tell me if they're in my office and there's no other distractions. So sometimes there's like more information in a way that's beautiful and connecting and I get to see people's homes. Like I would never otherwise see their homes. Yeah. And they're seeing mine too. And th- there's a humanness that happens. So I think the the ability to say, hey, this is weird. And we're all going, th- like you are going through something and I'm going through something similar. And what is it like for you to know that your therapist is actually also struggling with grocery shopping and <laughs> f- older family members and, and that we're just human together? Some Some of it has been really helpful for disrupting this hierarchy where we're all just kind of maybe in some ways reduced down to like, okay, what is what's happening right now for us? Yeah. Are you still doing sessions over Zoom or have restrictions lifted where you can see people in person again? Restrictions have list lifted and and that has meant that the people who have wanted to come back in and are safe to come back in and feel eager about that, we found a way to make that work. But mm-hmm. for a lot of people, because of their health, the health of the people they love, um, the you know their kids being home or their job having different challenges or whatever. Some people are going to, I think, probably opt to be online for a little while now because coming into the office, although there is something that would be probably relieving and connecting and calming about that, there's also something that's increasing their stress or it might feel more of like a risk. And I always say to people, how can we minimize the the distress that you have about just coming in the door to therapy so that you're not walking in with this kind of loaded gun. And in that way, we can just spend a little bit more time being mm-hmm. with the issues that matter for you instead of just wondering like, well, I touched a doorknob on the way in and is that going to, you know, <laughs> yeah. and having anxiety about that. Like, well, like we can totally work on that anxiety, but if it feels important for that not to be a part of our conversation, then let's just take it off the table for now. Yeah. So most people you are still seeing online or in person now? It really, it's varying. And some people I've seen in person once and then they're like, I've got a cold. I don't want to come in. I don't know what it is. They're back at home. So I imagine there'll be a lot of um, back and forth. Um, Lots of people have wanted to come back in, but don't feel like the time is right. Other people have come back in. They feel like they can do that safely, safely and we can plan around that. But I think one of the things that's really showed me is how adaptable I am and how adaptable mm. the people that I work with are. And when we have a strength of connection that allows us to know, hey, we're going to be good. Like the, the us part, the we part is going to be good no matter what form this takes. 
we can actually free up some energy away from trying to do what we think the other person thinks is right and actually just do what we know is best for us. Yeah. Not trying to earn or prove or kind of perform goodness. Were you seeing anyone new in terms of your clients? Mm -hmm. Because I imagine that would be even more interesting during COVID where you're meeting, where you're actually meeting someone for the first time on FaceTime or Zoom. Yeah, it definitely changes things. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I always love when people come into the office to see how do they sit down? Where do they sit? What we know, do they bring a coat and hang it up on the coat rack? Do they, do they bring a bottled water with them? Do they bring a coffee? Are they there with a notebook scribbling things? Like all of these little <laughs> things tell me so much about who a person is that you miss when you have this window that's just shoulders up. So I did see some, I did start seeing some new people during the the time of the pandemic kind of restrictions that really got thrown at us pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I had really wanted to do was extend some of the hours that I had in my practice to people who were working on the front lines. So I, mm. I intentionally decided to take some people who would be in really traumatizing environments to say, I wouldn't normally have the space to take people, but because I'm not traveling for work or speaking at all, I have some space would now be a time where you'd want to do some work. And um, that was a really interesting time to meet people when they're in the thick of something that was really overwhelming and distressing and I couldn't be in a room with them and see their whole body. And there are some things that we can do in therapy that, um, that work better when we're in the room together, specific Mm -hmm. trauma interventions and therapies that really utilize the way that the body stores trauma, the way that the body stores memory that are a little bit more challenging or inaccessible online. So now that things have lifted a bit, I'm really excited to see some of the people who've incurred a lot of suffering over the last few weeks. Um, In particular, even looking at things like systemic racial violence and oppression that is coming into our discourse for those of us who have the privilege to learn about it from the outside instead of experiencing it firsthand through our lives, the ability to be with people and do trauma interventions now feels really important because there's a lot of trauma that's being created and kicked up because of what's happening around us. Are you seeing, for the lack of a better word, that demand now? Like people are really wanting to see you or just see counselors in general because of what's happening in the world? I've definitely seen um, at first, and again, my practice might be so different than other people's practices or their client load or the presenting issues that they treat. But initially when the restrictions came in, it seemed like it was really hard to coordinate time and people weren't sure, how do I get space to do therapy at home when my kids are at home or when I don't have privacy? And then it seemed like I started hearing from a lot of people, including people I haven't heard from in a while, saying, I'm not coping, I'm not doing well, Um, I need some extra supports, or it feels like now is a good time just to get some extra supports just in case. Mm-hmm. And so that that shifted things a little bit. And then when things are going on around in the world, or going on in the world around us, I mean, like I mentioned already, we like to think of ourselves as individuals, but we are really humans in context. We are bodies in a social context. And mm-hmm. our social context ascribes value to certain bodies. And those bodies are where we exist. We're not just uh, thoughts that are carried around in a meat suit. We are this embodied experience of life. So as stories around bodies are coming up and we're having conversations and seeing images on media that are really traumatizing and feeling, I think I've, I'm sensing from a lot of people, the sense of um, really wanting to engage with social media to feel like they're current and they're learning mm-hmm. and they're being active in sh- shaping social discourse it is, it's really overwhelming for our nervous systems, for people who are experiencing things firsthand or observing things. And so I'm noticing um, even just recently that the people that I'm working with, almost every single person I've seen, we've talked about what's happening in the world in terms of civil rights and colonization and systemic racism mm. and how we have a role in, in perpetuating that, changing that, benefiting from it, um, or feeling oppressed by it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be coming up pretty consistently. When we look at how you've adapted your practice over the COVID crisis, and obviously we've talked about Zoom and meeting online, just for me personally, I've actually just felt like the phone is a lot more intimate. And I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's just that singular focus of someone's voice. Mm -hmm. 
Why Zoom and why not the phone? I mean, you brought up a few good things about Zoom in terms of you can see how someone's living, you can kind of get a feel for their environment. But in trying to achieve that intimacy that I presume needs to exist in a counselor-client relationship, why not just the phone? Oh, yeah. And I've been doing phone with some people because it feels preferable. And I know lots of people have chosen it and said, looking at the dots and the moving screen and the interruption in the video feed, it's not, it's distracting. It's Mm -hmm. taking away from what I'm feeling inside myself. So I think it's just up to the person and the, the specific client therapist dyad and what, what works best for the two of you. Yeah. So I, I certainly love doing phone too. There is this like you said, is such intimacy to it. And I think you hit it right on the head with saying there is a single focus. Whereas when we're trying to hear and go inside ourselves and listen to the other person and pay attention to the screen, it's not quite their face, it's a dot and the image is blurry and pixelated. <laughs> like it's just a lot of a lot of things taking our attention. And to have just an audio and a sense of being able to drift into ourselves and mm-hmm. feel the implicit connection. There can be such, such safety in that. Yeah. Um, I So I'm glad that you brought it up. I think it's totally valuable. And I certainly know that, that sometimes in my life, having a phone conversation, particularly when it was meaningful or risky for me, felt almost better than being in person mm-hmm. or doing something text-based or video-based. That there's something about really slowing down, no other distractions. You don't have to wonder what your face looks like. You don't have to wonder what the angle is, if they can see your eyes. Certainly better than text or video for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And I'm just thinking of, I have memorable phone conversations that I vividly remember. I do not have any vivid text sessions that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had some friends make really significant disclosures about their life over text. And I certainly remember those, but I don't sure. remember the, the text. I remember the information. And yeah. I, I do wonder when I think back to now, it's such a good point. I, I remember thinking, I wonder, I'm trying to picture them. Mm. Are they in their home? Are they at the beach? What are they, where are they when they're sending this message to me to get a bit more data? Yeah. Um, but you're right. There's something something really beautiful about phone and just hearing the quality of someone's voice. I mean, maybe that's why we like podcasts so much. I hope so. That's what I'm banking on. Okay. <laughs> well, we got to the bottom of it, didn't we? This I is what this so. is all about. <laughs> well, and I, I do want to talk about your podcast. I feel like we're going a bit sure. over time, but your podcast, Other People's Problems. Yeah. Congratulations on the third season, by hey, the way. Thank you so much. Riveting, yeah. as always. Oh, thanks. Thank you. I'm fascinated just by the concept of the show. Mm. On the surface, it is a bit of a paradox. You have these private sessions, private rituals almost, but they're being broadcast very publicly. And of course, you change the names, but a lot of people are listening in, in Mm -hmm. what would have been very private, intimate sessions. Is there an observer effect where you know you're being recorded or the client knows they're being recorded and maybe you have to overcome that. Hmm. Yeah. So I'll back this up by saying I've been in grad grad school, so master's and PhD in, you know, in clinical work in the field of psychology for over seven years. And through those seven years of a master's and a PhD, most of my clinical work has been taped. And then I've watched almost every single bit of what was taped back and shown it to supervisors and had rooms of my fellow students or clinical supervision teams reviewing and scrutinizing and saying, wow, you did this really well. Why did you make Mm. that choice? Why didn't you do that? Why did you that? And so there is this kind of comfort sort of with being videotaped and audio taped as a therapist, because I'm so used to having that done. Although sometimes it can feel a little bit scary, like, okay, what, you know, what would my supervisor say? And did I do that intervention right? And what's, what's this going to sound like later? But for the most part, because of the way I work is so in the moment and so relational and connected to people, I've gotten the practice of, of putting that on the shelf, knowing it's there, 
but knowing that's okay and it's going to help me learn. Right. And just to be with my be with myself and be with this other person really connected. So that's my side of it. And I think most people don't know that, right? Like right. I wouldn't have known yeah. that you had taped so much prior to your podcast. Yeah. I thought taping it was a new thing. Thousands of hours, thousands and thousands wow. of hours of taped therapy and had it watched by people who had totally different theoretical frameworks come at things mm. differently. Some people who I was using my videos to talk about things I was proud of. Sometimes people using my videos or tapes for people to help me with things that I had no clue what I was doing. But this is like how we, this is how we learn as therapists because mm -hmm. um, it's really changes the dynamic. If you actually have a really, really experienced therapist sitting in the room with you as a new therapist and your patient. So I was used to that. And it's still a little scary. So those are both true. <laughs> so that's you. Yeah, that's <laughs> That covers me. your side. Yeah. And then with my patients, um, some people have said they totally forgot about it. Other mm. times people said that they that they were aware of it, but that it didn't change what they were saying. And other people, mm. what, what you don't know about on this podcast is all of the people that I taped with who at the end of session said, please delete that immediately. Or people oh, really? who in the middle of the session said, you know what? It's doing something weird. I keep thinking about what it would be like if my mom heard me say this. And I'm not in the room with you. I'm thinking through my mom's eyes. Right. So there, what you don't know is all the people who said no, all the people who said yes, then no, all the people who said yes, all the way right up to the end, even heard a produced version and then said no. And all of the different ways that people exercise their voice in this whole project, which is actually a sign that this is a way bigger project than just what you see mm -hmm. uh, or what you hear on the audio, because it involves so many people who who made really hard choices to say yes or no somewhere along the way, and we never ended up hearing their final version. Right. Are all the episodes from this season during the COVID period? I know that the premiere episode really touched on the pandemic and right. social isolation. Right. The second episode, not so much. So, I'm, but I'm just wondering, in general, are all the episodes from this time period? No, no. We started recording months, um, months before the mm. pandemic hit North America. So this includes stuff from, essentially, I think this this winter, this fall onward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was there any distinction? from the pandemic episodes to the episodes that were recorded before the pandemic? Well, yeah, I think because like I was mentioning, we live in, we live in a social context when stuff changes in our lives, it changes how we see ourselves and how we connect and the meaning we make of what's going on. So I think that there's, there are some changes, like some of the sessions that you'll hear in this season are actually from doing online work after everything moved online. Mm. And other sessions, people people are noticing that because of work changes, things that were previously a problem aren't so much a problem, so they're feeling better in their lives. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that, that we see is different. Um, yeah. Hmm. To wrap it up here, as we go through this pandemic mm -hmm. and we sort of, you know, poke our heads out a little bit as some of the restrictions lift. Right. It's been heavy for people. It's certainly affected people. The news cycle, as we've alluded to, mm. is not helping. And, and sometimes it can be counterproductive to mental health to be too consumed with, unfortunately, everything that's going on. My worry is that there's going to be a mental health crisis that awaits us right. because we know that economic downturns trigger spikes in suicide, in right. domestic violence, and in a lot of other issues related to mental health. When we put all of this together in terms of both the pandemic and now the uprisings that we're seeing across the globe, is there a worry that we're going to see a spike in a lot of these issues? Uh, is there a worry? I think, I think we're already seeing some of it. Um, I think people surprise us. I think we surprise us sometimes. And so I, I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to say everything is going to be awful across the board. Um, <laughs> right. Even when we look at the uprising. That's the safe bet of, for 2020, by the way. Because <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> even looking at the uprisings, and this is what I've learned from, from my friends in the Black community, even in the midst of the suffering, 
there is this joy that things are being named or mm-hmm. maybe joy isn't the right word, but a sense of rightness. Right. So sometimes, right, in situations of pain, things that need to be attended to are attended to or people make changes in their life. So I guess I feel hesitant to say, I think it's going to be awful um, because I believe in the human spirit. I believe in our resilience as people that it's available to us to heal even in the midst of turmoil. Mm-hmm. But I do want to be prepared as a clinician to know, I think that some of the consistent stressors or even what we might call trauma fatigue, like so many things after things after things overwhelming our systems is going to have an impact. Mm-hmm. And and we have to be prepared as clinicians, as communities, um, as a government to put appropriate energy and funding and resources in places so that we support people to do well because we've been hit with a lot. And again, that gives us an invitation to pivot and say, okay, what is a priority? And maybe where were we giving money as a community that in the past that we need to give it now to support people to thrive and heal? And in that way, there can be some some good changes that happen. But I think think we need to keep an eye on our mental health. I think we need to be talking to our friends and family about how we're feeling. I think Mm -hmm. we need to find spaces where it's okay to be vulnerable, like we've been talking about, and, and resource ourselves. And some specific things around that that I think we can do even right now are let's keep an eye on how much social media we're using. Mm-hmm. We don't need to see a violent act over and over and over and over again to get the point that it's wrong. Yeah. We don't need to get updated statistics on how many people are dying to realize we've got to we've got to stay at home, we've got to wash our hands, we've got to be careful about who we see and what we touch. Like we don't need the overwhelming saturation of stimulating and dysregulating images to teach us a lesson about how we should live our lives. Mm-hmm. So let's let's disengage. Let's make sure we're getting movement. We're eating well. We're talking to our friends and family about what's happening inside of us. And we're, we're doing things that support us, given yeah. everything we're carrying right now. When we put the COVID crisis in particular in, into context, is it amplifying quote-unquote problems and or issues, or is it actually creating issues, or is it a mix of both? It's so hard to say. Like a sociologist or a politician might talk about it differently because I sit in rooms with individuals. I'm just trying to look at the, the data that's spread across the population I work with, and mm-hmm. I, I couldn't give you a statement one way or the other. I think it <laughs> depends on the person, right? Again, yeah. I'm so phenomenological. I'm really just looking at the person in front of me, and, and I'm seeing both. Of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I think that's important too, in terms of what you're seeing and and how, how that relates to the world. Because some people mm-hmm. think that it's something that's long stemming, or you know, some people just haven't been put into a place of stress or <laughs> uncertainty and, and now mm-hmm. they have been, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's anytime there is disruption, there is the opportunity for um, a crumble or a, uh, a pivot and a growth. Mm-hmm. I think that this is really the, the work of the existential psychotherapist has really informed me in this perspective, which is that there are some things that just happen and we, we often get a choice in how we respond to it. Again, that's easier if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, easier if we're paying attention, mm-hmm. easier if we feel resourced in our community to know what our choices are. But there are awful things that happen in life and we get to decide, okay, what was my role in that? And what am I going to do about it moving forward in such a way that I can create a better life for myself and for my community. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be lots of opportunities because of this for people to say that, and this reference is something I mentioned earlier, like, wow, I traveled so much for work and now I'm home with my son all the time. Maybe, maybe there's an invitation here for me to realize that I want to be more connected to my family and so I'm going to make some changes to have, you know, my, my, I'm going to switch jobs or I'm yeah. going to go down to part-time. I've heard people say that, like, I don't ever want to have to leave my kids and mm. go back to the life that I had before. And so there's, there's lots of things that are happening all over the place. And that's just what happens when we, everything gets shaken up. Yeah. <laughs> Hillary, our time is up. Oh, how did that happen? But I'm not going to bill you. I'm not going to bill you. <laughs> it stays free as long as we stay out of doing uh, doing actual therapy for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. 
Where do people find you? Where do they find the podcast? I'm sure they already know, but just as a reiteration. Yeah, you can find um, other people's problems on Apple Podcasts, all of the places where you normally find podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at Hillary Leanna McBride or on Twitter, Hillary L. McBride. And my website is HillaryLMcBride.com. And I've got, I've got a couple books out and I've got another one coming out February 2021. And so you can keep an eye on that. What's the theme of the new book? The theme is all about embodiment. So looking again, as I was mentioning earlier, about bodies in social contexts. So understanding everything from emotion, trauma, chronic pain to oppression in the body, sexuality, the spirituality of the body, the whole thing really is about coming home to ourselves as bodies and why that matters. Well, once it's out, you need to come back on the podcast and we'll have to talk about it. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Hillary. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. People, make sure you check out CBC's Other People's Problems, hosted by our guest today. She is a wise, wise woman. She is Hillary McBride, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.